welcome to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. This week, I am joined by William Pomerantz, Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. He's an expert on Russian law, political and economic developments, and we are going to talk about Russia's proposed constitutional reform. Very timely and interesting discussion. I hope you like it. Let's get started. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Will Pomerantz, uh, Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Will, welcome to the show. Glad to be back. So let's talk about the constitutional reform. And I put reform in in quotation marks that you can't really see because we're on a podcast um, that's now being proposed and wending its way through the system in Russia. What are some of the key provisions of the reform? And why do you think that these reforms are being introduced now? Well, there's several major reforms that on paper suggest uh, or imply elements of change. But I think all by and large, these amendments simply strengthen the power vertical and the centralization of power. The question really is where Putin lands in 2024. uh, And that's really the heart of the debate about these constitutional amendments. So to summarize about the actual amendments, for the most part, uh, the amendments strengthen power of the presidency with one notable exception. But in terms of increasing the power of the presidency, the most notable amendment is the one that allows him to initiate the firing of constitutional court judges, judges, Supreme Court justices, appellate judges, and cassation judges. So that is a very wide power. Uh, Admittedly, it has to go through the Federation Council, Mm -hmm. but there's no doubt that the Federation Council would approve the president's decision to try to remove a justice. So that's On the whole, I think the presidency uh, remains the strongest institution under the Russian constitution. And President Putin, in his comments after the issuing of the amendments, has emphasized that he still believes in a strong presidency and doesn't want to convert to a parliamentary republic or system. That being said, one of the crucial amendments deals with the legislature, and it allows the Duma, the parliament, to name the prime minister and the uh, cabinet secretaries. And if they, when they propose these appointments, uh, the president has to accept them. So this is a real departure from the old constitution where the president proposes the prime minister and basically controls the naming of the government. So this is kind of what, if, if you're looking for a liberal reform, kind of an attempt to in- enhance the power of the legislature. Uh, might be considered the most liberal of all reforms. And when we say the legislature, that is separate from the prime minister. Absolutely, yes. So there's an executive, legislative, and judicial branch of of government under the Russian constitution. The legislature and the prime minister is the head of the executive branch. So Putin technically is not the head of the executive branch, but the prime minister is. And the prime minister in Russia, unlike in a lot of countries that are more parliamentary systems, isn't chosen from the the party or the exactly or the it doesn't come from within the members of parliament. Right. Uh, it comes from the president, and so therefore, this is this, in, in theory, at least, this would enhance the power of the Duma um, and limit the option of the president to reject the choice of the Duma. Now, I don't think we're at the point of cohabitation, as I like to say <laughs> in France, yeah. where you have an opposition prime minister from a different party from the president. 
that has caused problems in the French political system and other political systems, but they found ways to, as they say, cohabitate. Uh, but I don't think we're, we're there yet in terms of where Russia is in the reform process. Right. Well, Russia doesn't have strong political parties. And exactly. It's unclear who, where the opposition would come from at this point. Exactly. That, that's kind of the hint of a liberal wind. Then you have the powers of the presidents to restrict the judiciary the, the, and remove potentially judges uh, from the constitutional court and so forth. That, I think, uh, weakens the judicial branch, although it hasn't been a very vibrant branch to begin with. But nevertheless, they found ways to l limit the independence of the judiciary even more by introducing this amendment and other amendments. The, the other major amendment in terms of the presidency, I'll, I'll return to the presidency, is the end of the amendment that limits the president for, to two consecutive terms and then will allow the president to serve mm -hmm. only two terms. So uh, I think most of your listeners are aware of how Putin served two terms, took, a, took four years off as prime minister, and then has now served didn't for exactly a, take four years off. He didn't take four years off. He, took, he, he, he found a different position uh, and indeed one can – argue uh, that, in fact, he remained the center of power during those four years of, of President Medvedev as well. So you have this attempt to limit the number of terms that a president can serve, and therefore Putin now faces 2024, where in theory at least, uh, under the current amendments, uh, he could not run for a third term. Now, again, whether that is the final reading of these amendments is unclear. Putin has a long time to deal with where he lands in 2024. But these amendments deal with that as well. Uh, and they create something called the State Council, mm -hmm. which has been an advisory body when, since the time that they removed governors from the Federation Council, has been largely inactive. Uh, now they want to stick it into the Constitution as a, spe as a specific constitutional body, as it were. Mm -hmm. And they have assigned very broad powers to the head of the state council, including coordinating and the coordination and the functioning of state organs of power and setting the direction of domestic and foreign policy. So kind of like the Politburo. Kind of like the Politburo. And obviously the question becomes, how do you have a strong presidency when you have this position, which has authority, in theory at least, based on the constitutional amendment, to set the country's agenda? The question of coordination of institutions of state power, of domestic and foreign policy, those have been the prerogatives of the president. Right. So now you have a new institution created whose powers conflict or, or overlap with the presidency. And obviously, this has been argued and the conventional wisdom now is in 2024, when Putin, in theory, can't run again for president, that this is where he lands and this is how he uh, influences Russian policy going forward. Right. One of the things that we've learned about the Russian political system ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, but even more under Putin, is that institutions are often there for show. Uh, they function sometimes, but the actual role that they play is in a lot of ways subordinate to the personal relationships and the power relationships among the individuals in different roles, which is why that when Putin was prime minister from 2008 to 2012, he could be as you said, still the the one calling the shots on many occasions. And so I'm curious how this new reconfiguration of power, um, how significant it will be if the nature of authority in the Russian system remains very personalized. And the answer is that we don't know. 
And there are variables here that we won't know until 2024. Whether Putin can pull off the Nazarbayev switch or whatever country you want to identify who has tried to do similar things and transfer power from a government institution to what is really an advisory body. So can he do that? Well, I think in order to do so, he again has to find a president who is, has the appearance of strength but will listen and implement what the state council wants. Something that Yeltsin's advisory group family singularly failed to do in 2000. Right. And uh, one have to say, has to say that Dmitry Medvedev fulfilled that role uh, reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he wanted to have another term in office. I think by the end of his term, he was looking to find more independent bases of support. But he never turned on Vladimir Putin. And Putin will have to find a similar person mm-hmm. who can fulfill that role. Or maybe the same person. Or he might <laughs> – and, and I, I, don't, I do not discount the fact that Dmitry Medvedev could uh, return to the presidency. It might not be a popular decision. <laughs> to uh, say the but, least. But, but nevertheless, he has had, held the job once. Since there will be term limits, he can only hold the job for one term. So he would be a lame duck as soon as he mm-hmm. became president. And that might be the person that Putin decides uh, if he goes down this path. That that's that's that the Dmitry Medvedev has a a second term. I don't discount that at all. So what do we know about the process by which these amendments were cooked up? These were announced in Putin's State of the Nation speech uh, earlier this year. Do they look to you, as somebody who studied Russian law, like something that's gone through a kind of thorough process of of legal vetting and drafting, or does does this seem like a kind of slapdash effort? We knew that these reforms were coming. Because in his news conference at the end of the year, he talked about, well, maybe we should change the term for president that, you know, instead of having the, remove the word consecutive and limit the president to, to two terms. He'd also hinted to another reform that is in these constitutional amendments, and that is a creation of a unified system of public power. Now, no one actually really knows what that means, and he's proposed it in his constitutional amendments. But it's quite clear that he wants to go after institutions of local self-government and regional legislatures. Not that they have possessed significant power beforehand, but as we've seen in the— Well, they they did once upon a time. Well, they they never were really fully funded. And their actions during the Yeltsin period, they were struggling, but they they were trying to actually uh, be implemented. Yeah, but some of them had fairly extensive autonomy. Like I know in Tatarstan, for instance, they had a provision where they could review Russian legislation to make sure that it was in conformity with local law in Tatarstan. Right. So so that was the regional legislature, but not institutions of self-government. Okay. So uh, so it's unclear to what extent the regional legislatures, for example, the Moscow City Duma, which is not local self-government, but is a regional legislature, to what extent they fall in within this provision. But clearly, if you go on past performance, the emphasis on unity and unified systems of state power suggests the leadership has decided to undermine the autonomy of these institutions. So the best example is with governors in 2004 when they decided to stop having direct elections of governors and instead have them appointed Mm -hmm. by the the Kremlin. Uh, They turned to clauses within the constitutions that emphasized emphasize a unified system of executive power. And if you read the constitutional court decision that upholds this decision, that's the one phrase that they seize upon essentially to justify getting rid of elected governors. 
Again, governors have gone through a transformation as well in terms of how they're elected and appointed. We, we won't need to go into that. But when you talk about a unified system, it doesn't strike one as being an emphasis on democracy. It emphasizes centralized control. Right. And Putin mentioned in his speech as well that for a country the size of Russia, you can't really have either a parliamentary system or I guess what you would call a real federation. You need to have a very centralized, top-down method of, of rule if you're going to keep this big, messy, diverse country together. That's been his modus operandi since he became president and indeed when he was prime minister mm -hmm. in his millennium message just before he became president. He emphasized the strong state and of course one of the first things he does when he becomes president. Well, not only the strong state but his understanding. Centralized state. Yes. Yes. And the first thing he does is, is he ends the bilateral agreements mm -hmm. that Yeltsin had signed. He signed over 40 right. to transfer power to the regions. Uh, Putin immediately begins winding them down. Right. It takes him a while to do yeah, it. Yeah. Some of the – I think the last one Tart Tart was like 2017 or something. Tartistan was 2017. Yeah. So, so it takes him a while to get rid of these bilateral agreements. But he has always been about a unified system of power and top-down – transfer of rules and legislation from the Kremlin to the regions. With the important exception of Chechnya. With the important exception of Chechnya. And as I argue in my book, that kind of shows the remnants of empire, that empires don't actually have to have a single system. Mm -hmm. They can actually have these small deals that allow them to confirm their allegiance to the federation, but don't necessarily mean that they have to observe Russian law to the letter. So let's talk about the process by which these constitutional amendments are getting approved because right now it seems that there's been some kind of a delay in the plebiscite to have them uh, approved. There seems to be some kind of a delay, maybe some reconsideration of certain elements of them. What do we know about how the process of implementing them is going and how has the, the public reaction been? Okay, So it's sailed through the first reading but it's the second reading of the law where the amendments are considered and proposed. And their different amendments have surfaced now. So the most uh, noticeable one, I'll, I'll mention two, uh, that Putin did not propose himself, is some reference to God into the Constitution. That's difficult because uh, the there are lots of different religious groups well, in Russia. For, not only that, but the, the Constitution states that Russia is a secular state. Mm -hmm. And that is in one of the provisions. Uh, and I'll have to go – I can go over this in more detail uh, later – that would require a constitutional assembly to change as opposed to a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. First and second chapters on the Russian federal system and the individual rights and citizens of, of, of Russians cannot be amended by constitutional law according to this constitution. Hmm. They can only be amended by calling a, a constitutional assembly. So that really gives extra authority to all the rights that are included, especially in chapter 2 admittedly not observed to the letter, but nevertheless the aspirational rights, you can't change those. So the question becomes how do you introduce a notion of religious – of God or something like that into the constitution? Now, where did this proposed amendment come from? I think it comes from the church and it comes from various Duma deputies. Everyone is proposing different amendments. Right. Uh, another amendment is a desire to change the preamble to the constitution and to identify uh, Russia's victory in World War II. So there's some ambiguity as to how you mm, amend what you, what does the that preamble. Mean exactly? What does it mean and so forth? And how do you amend the preamble? Because it's not part of chapters one or two, but it's not 
part of chapters three and eight, so is, can you can amend it by constitutional law and so forth. So there are various amendments floating around. I just read about a question today that has emerged, and that is under Article 111 of the Constitution, if the Duma rejects the president's nominee three times, it is the Duma that is dissolved, mm -hmm. and the president can call for new elections. Right. I remember this happening uh, in, in the Primakov, 1990s. Yes, Primakov, yeah. yes. That's how Primakov came to power. Right. And so the question is, Putin doesn't propose an amendment to Article 111.4, uh, which is that provision. But of course, now people have realized if the Duma is appointing the prime minister, this provision doesn't make any sense. But Putin hasn't proposed to remove it. So it will be very interesting to see if in these discussions with the Duma and the parliamentary committees, etc., whether they say, well, this is now incongruous with the reforms. But, but there's a reason why that, amendment, that is a constitutional provision, because it provided the presidency the leverage over the legislature. Right. So if you really don't like my appointee, then You're gone. you have to commit suicide. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that kind of changes the balance of power. The, the, the Duma in the 1990s didn't want to commit suicide, and they dealt with Primakov. So now are we facing what, what are the consequences of leaving Article 111 in? Does it have to be changed? Getting to your second question, it seems that Putin didn't think through all the ramifications of his reforms because he left this contradiction right there in the Constitution. So we're now collecting amendments. We're seeing if any of them actually make it through. We're seeing whether Putin likes them or doesn't like them. So this is all kind of up in the air. Putin said he wanted this plebiscite by, I think, May. Whether that takes place then or not is unclear. It's clear that he doesn't want a referendum, and a referendum uh, would require a larger turnout. And so therefore, he wants to do this plebiscite as opposed to a referendum. What, now, what's the difference? I have to go back. I, I'm trying to figure out exactly how the law on national referendum works. Okay. When Yeltsin faced this question, and there was a law on a referendum, it required not the approval of half the voters who voted, but appro approval of, of half the Russian population. Okay. So it has the implication of a higher threshold. And so when Yeltsin put his constitution to a national vote, he did not choose to have a referendum because it was a fear that not enough people would show up. Uh -huh. This was in 1993? 1993, but in 1992, if you recall, in the no, no, yes, no, or yes, yes, no, yes, I forget the actual <laughs> way that people right. wanted to vote, but the about his powers and the relationship with the Duma, it, did not, it was not enforceable because not enough people participated. So he won the referendum, as it were, by 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 winning majorities, but 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 not enough people voted to make it kind of legally binding. So the question is, you know, what sort of requirement? So so there's no real requirement for the plebiscite. It's just Putin's desire to kind of consult the people mm -hmm. to give it some popular At, legitimacy. Popular legitimacy, and so uh, is it again just half the people who participate? Does it is it half the population? Mm -hmm. Obviously, he doesn't want to lose this plebiscite, so I, I sincerely believe that he'll make sure that whatever the requirements are, he will meet the requirements. And there's already reports in the press that local governors and local officials uh, will have a lot of pressure applied. I can imagine. So, so, that they, so that the requisite number of voters show up 
and that the uh, Constitution is approved overwhelmingly. This also, of course, seems like an opportunity for various opposition groups and opposition figures to mobilize to make a statement of some kind. I mean, Russian elections often are predictable but not boring and certainly something as weighty as the future of the constitution. I think you can envision a scenario where people decide to make sure that it's not a boring referendum. Well, we'll have to wait and see on the day of the, day of the voting. Yeah. Um, I thought Iowa was going to be kind of boring, but well. – <laughs> or not boring, but at least uh, I thought we would at least have results. Right. Um, they, they are always uh, an unpredictable factor. Clearly, none of the opposition figures have voiced support for the amendments. They've wanted to introduce their own amendments. It's unlikely that they will be considered. But, you know, the, the power vertical is not omnipresent at times, but when – called upon, it will enforce the decree from Moscow. Or it will attempt to. Attempt to. And I, I think in this case, since the strong order will come down from Moscow, not to have any surprises. I think that that's what they'll try to do. What occurs on the election day, obviously Putin has and, and uh, United Russia have lost gubernatorial elections. They've mm -hmm. lost elections for uh, city council. That could happen. But we'll just have to wait and see how, how they organize from now till May. So we've talked about the elements of the proposed amendments that touch on the balance of power between different institutions uh, or different players within the political system. But there's some other provisions in the, the constitutional package too that touch on things like social benefits and uh, payments and, and standard of living kind of questions. Can you go through those a little bit and, and talk about what they are and, and what they might mean? Well, the social benefits that he's put into the Constitution are indexing of pensions mm -hmm. and a living minimum wage, essentially. Those, not surprisingly, are much very more popular, popular <laughs> amongst the Russian population. They have, according to initial polls, kind of 90 plus percent popularity. So I think the, the, from a political standpoint, in light of the fact that um, a quarter of Russians are already pension age, uh, this and is increasing. And increasing and will only increase. Uh, this is a, a winning provision, as it were. The broader question is in kind of the relationship between the political civil rights articulated in the Russian constitution and social rights. Mm -hmm. So they both were included in the constitution. In the original uh, constitution. In the, the, in the 1993 constitution. constitution yeah. And they list uh, a lot of the freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, due process requirements. And then Article 7, though, says that Russia is a social state. And there's always been this tension, I think, in the post-Soviet Russia as to what people think are more important, their civil rights or their social rights. Mm -hmm. Well, one could say the same thing in, in a lot of countries. A lot of countries, but it, it, particularly in a post-Soviet country, the social benefits were the, the important benefits from their perspective. And well, that's what you had in the Soviet period. You didn't have much in the way of civil rights. But exactly. You, have you, have, you had qualified civil rights, rights yes. but, and you had social benefits. And so – I think this reinforces the kind of emphasis within the constitution, um, putting a, a stronger emphasis on the social rights as to what to offer people as opposed to enforcing the civil rights. So that there's, there's always been that difficult balance in terms of what rights are, are enforced. I think Putin has made the bet that social rights are much more important and that that's going to be a, a way to keep his popularity up. Yeah, or that if he's worried about whether people are going to support 
the constitutional change or vote for it in this plebiscite, one way to encourage people to do so is to emphasize that in voting for these provisions, they will be voting for the indexation of pensions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think that is a, a popular measure. I think I think the other there, there are other issue interesting issues within these amendments. Mm-hmm. One is the amendment whereby that in a conflict between an international agreement and an international decision and the Russian courts and Russian law, Russian law prevails. Right. So this is in response to all the cases at the European Court of Human Rights well, of, and the, ICJ. That is, that of Russia course, now there, there always already exists a mechanism whereby the constitutional court can review decisions of the European court and overturn them. They have done so on two occasions, uh, in the Horkowski case and in a case involving the right of prisoners to vote. So they haven't really exercised this vote, this, this power often. But they've highlighted the fact that in a conflict between the European court and the European convention and the Russian constitution, it's the Russian constitution that will be upheld. Now, this, this provision is much broader. Mm-hmm. It doesn't only refer to the European court. It, it refers to all international agreements and any sort of decision from an international tribunal. And it doesn't assign the constitutional court with the monopoly of deciding what decisions to observe and which decisions not to observe. So does it specify who has that responsibility? No. So it will it will be specified in law. Mm-hmm. And for all we know, the law will designate the constitutional court again as the institution to handle such cases. But the, the amendment to the constitution is much broader than the actual legislation that was introduced in 2015 to individually overturn European court decisions. Right, which imposes an affirmative burden that Russia has to take the political hit every time right. they say we're going to have the constitutional court rule that we're not going to comply with this you know, ECH, uh, ECHR ruling. Whereas now if you have a blanket provision that says Russian law is supreme, you don't have to go through this process every time. Right, and, and, and maybe it just is the you know, minister of justice or something decides these cases, which would lower the kind of threshold and the tension and make it easier to disregard these court decisions. Uh, The constitutional court has been dragged into political debates as well under these amendments, specifically an amendment that says if the president vetoes a bill and the legislature overrides the veto. Has that ever happened? Uh, they, in the Yeltsin period, they did override some vetoes. The, uh, Putin doesn't have to issue vetoes anymore because yeah, he's, the legislature he's, proposing is, the le- he's proposing the legislation. <laughs> yes. it's, it's not, well, and the legislature a, <laughs> is, is sort of handcrafted. Exactly. So, so it's, it's not, a, it's, it's not as uh, much of a problem as it was in the 1990s. But what he's added, this provision, and, and he obviously thought about this one, is that if they override the veto, he can appeal to the constitutional court before the legislation becomes law and the court can rule on the constitutionality of, the of, this, le- of, the, of this legislation. So he has another bite at the apple, in other words. But so th- that's a little confusing because it can be constitutional, but they can still decide they don't want it, right? Exactly. It's a, it's a so, political so, decision rather than a constitutional decision in exactly, the legislature. Exactly, but, but it's really an administrative decision that, uh, that forces the court to deal with legislation before it's even implemented mm-hmm. to opine on the constitutionality and the legality of this legislation. Right. So it's, a, it's another check that he has against the legislature mm-hmm. to overturn legislation. Right. And two more amendments that I've hinted to. Uh, one is this unified system of public power, which no one really knows what it means, but clearly is an attempt to – To reduce the federal aspects of exactly, Russian federalism. Exactly. Reinforce the, the Kremlin, reinforce Moscow's role and diminish what is an already diminished institution in terms of local self-government. 
And the final um, provision that I think is worth noting is the increase in power of the, of the prosecutor's office. This is a long-running debate. Yeltsin essentially wanted to downgrade the prosecutor's office, which is the longest-running and arguably the most powerful judicial institution in Russia. Yeltsin wanted to downgrade the institution. He didn't even want to include it in the Constitution. And in the end, it was just kind of included under judicial power, where, of course, it doesn't belong, and says, you know, essentially, federal law will determine the powers of the prosecutor's office. Well, the prosecutor's office, which is known as the eyes of the sovereign, never liked that, has fought a two decades plus long battle to retain its position or reinstate its position in the Constitution. And in this, these amendments, most of their supervisory powers are reestablished within the Constitution. They've had supervisory powers under law. But what do you mean by supervisory powers? To review the Constitution, to, to review the implementation of laws, to supervise civil rights, to supervise... So not just to prosecute criminal cases. Exactly. That their, their mandate is far more than simply the prosecution of criminal cases, that they really are able to supervise the implementation of all laws. And in many ways, it's the prosecutor's office that determines what a law says as opposed to the, the judiciary in terms of the enforcement. So the prosecutor's office has always been much more powerful than the district attorneys of the United States. So they have fought a strong rearguard action to have some of their powers reinstated via legislation. In these amendments to the Constitution, the prosecutor's office receives the constitutional guarantees that were lacking in previous. And the prosecutor is part of the executive and is appointed by the president, the president. and and is, is in many ways responsible for enforcing and setting the agenda for Russia's judicial system, more so, I would argue, uh, than the minister of justice. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is not one of the positions where the legislature would get the power to to pick them and the president would have to accept. No. And in fact, what the, the amendment does is increase the power to appoint prosecutors on a regional level. And so it increases... Increases the power of the president, president to appoint the regional, appoint the regional prosecutors. And the prosecutor's office is a, a crucial part of the power vertical. Yeah. He's just named a new prosecutor general. So it's all part of again, the centralization of power. Mm-hmm. When he talked about the, the reform of the prosecutor's office, Putin specifically said what he doesn't like is localism, <laughs> that he doesn't like the fact that up, up until now, a lot of the local prosecutors and regional prosecutors have been appointed by the prosecutor general and the regions themselves. He doesn't want to do that anymore. He wants to assume the responsibility. Well, there's also been at the federal level a plurality of investigative bodies, the, the prosecutor and the investigative committee and yeah, all see, of these different So, So this, this is, a, again, an inside baseball question uh, for those who want to follow the uh, internal meanderings of the prosecutor's office. But they took the power of investigation away of the prosecutor's office to supervise investigation in 2007. And the prosecutor's office has always wanted it back. And who's not to say that in light of these amendments, the greater supervision of investigation will again return to the prosecutor's office. Great. Well, this has been super fascinating. Uh, Will, thanks for joining us. My pleasure.
Thanks for joining us. That's it for our show today. You can find a link to Will's bio in the show notes. You can also find a link to a place where you can purchase his book, Law and the Russian State, Russia's Legal Evolution from Peter the Great to Vladimir Putin. Will was on the podcast last year to talk about the book. uh, And you can also find a link below to uh, his previous appearance on Russian Roulette. If you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette. You can do that on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can do this on Google Play or on SoundCloud. Also, keep sending us mailbag questions. You can email them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, and you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. Finally, of course, big thanks to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabadulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and ILAB team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.